Well, good morning. Welcome to Calvary Baptist Church. Uh, as you have heard several times already this morning, I am Brandon Howard. Um, <laughs> uh, and I'm very, very happy uh, to be up here preaching once again. This is my third time preaching at this church. Um, so I'm glad that the first two times didn't scare the pastors away. Um, and let's hope that the third time uh, doesn't either. So what I do do, I, I am a, B- a Bible teacher here at Calvary Baptist. I regularly teach on Wednesday nights over in the Timothy building. Uh, and I am also uh, have served the church as a deacon. Currently, I want to use the term deacon emeritus uh, between deacon terms right now, but that's, that's fine. And so I'm, I'm excited to, to, to fill the pulpit again uh, this morning. Somebody asked me in the lead-up to this morning, uh, I don't remember if it was here with church uh, or, or some friends, they asked what it was like to preach or why, what I liked about preaching. And I did a terrible job uh, kind of enumerating on that point. And I guess the answer I would give this morning is it's like being in the right place at just the right time. And I don't think that that quite does it enough credit there too, but it's, it's a wonderful experience. And again, I, I can't thank you enough for the opportunity to, to be able to serve in this capacity. So in this capacity, uh, this time preaching, I get to preach as part of a series, all right? And so that's, uh, that's rather exciting. We started um, our, our passage, or our series in jo- looking at Joseph's life in Genesis 37 last week with Pastor Zach. Um, and this morning we get to continue that message. The theme of the series being the purpose of, purposes of God in the land of affliction. But this morning, we don't really have a very positive story to look, look at. Uh, this is kind of a dark chapter in biblical history, uh, this, this episode that we see this morning. It's not flattering at all, um, and it's not, wasn't entirely comfortable to study through and apply uh, and preach to myself as I was preparing the sermon this morning. Um, and it's just a little bit disturbly, disturbing. And quite frankly, we're introduced in this passage, uh, we're introduced to a conspiracy that's going to play out on the pages of Scripture before us. And in American culture, we're really familiar with conspiracies or conspiracy theories, right? You see it all the time in the news. You see it all the time in your news feed on social media. They're all over the place. They abound everywhere. Everything from who killed JFK to Stanley Kubrick uh, directed the moon landing um, my, my personal favorite, I'll, I'll share with you uh, now, uh, you might not have heard about this one. The, did you know that birds aren't real? <laughs> Has anybody heard this one? This, one, this one's pretty interesting. Um, in the middle of the 20th century, a group of U.S. patriots uncovered a plot, a nefarious plot, by the CIA to capture all of the birds in America and replace them with robots that had... It gets worse. They have cameras and microphones in their eyeballs. And so the CIA in Langley, Virginia, is able to monitor all of our activities uh, throughout our daily lives. When you ever you see an innocuous bird in a tree, that's really the government listening in on you. Birds aren't real. And i got to give those guys credit, those conspiracy theorists uh, right there. They make some of the best T-shirts that I've ever seen a conspiracy theorist make. I uh, don't encourage you to buy those. But even in the bir- birds aren't real conspiracy, even in the JFK conspiracy, all the conspiracies that we see in front of us as Americans, we notice kind of a common theme, right? There's somebody in power 
that's holding it over us. There's some them that's against us, all right? And it's usually the government or it's some sort of shadowy organization that's secretly controlling the government to secretly control your lives, right? But the conspiracy we see today is a lot worse than that because this is not some theoretical overreach of the government that's playing out for Joseph. What we're going to see in Joseph's story today is that the them is right in his own household. Joseph is going to be betrayed and conspired against by his own brothers, men that he knew his entire life. And so to get the whole picture of this, I think it's necessary to review just a little bit of what we learned last week uh, uh, when we started Genesis 37. It's important to get the background right on this because Joseph comes from a very complicated family. So Jacob, of course, being the father. uh, In our passage today, uh, Jacob's going to be referred to by both names, Jacob and Israel. Same guy, uh, but uh, I'll probably use his name interchangeably as well. So Jacob... Uh, has 12 sons, and we're not told how many daughters, but we're, well, we know that it's an expansive family tree. And to make things even more complicated, because 12 sons isn't complicated enough, these 12 sons come from four different mothers, all right? So there is Leah, who was married, uh, married to Jacob first. We know we're familiar with that story probably where uh, Jacob went out and labored for his father-in-law for Rachel's hand in marriage. And then on the wedding day, he was deceived and underneath a very heavy veil was not Rachel but Leah. But Jacob wanted to really marry Rachel, so for seven more years... He labors there uh, in Laban's household, and he finally gets Rachel's hand in marriage. And from that marriage, from those two marriages there of those two sisters, we have a den of envy and hatred and strife play out uh, in this family. As both women compete with one another for their husband's affection and attention, they get in this competition with each other trying to birth sons first. And so the firstborn son came to Leah. That's Reuben. We'll meet him in a little bit too. Um, But this entire family background kind of informs us as to why the brothers might be behaving this way. They come by it honestly is all I'm saying. So the brothers that we see here, the ones that we're going to focus on this morning, while there's going to be 10 of them out there in the wilderness, 11 once Joseph gets there, we'll meet Reuben by name. We'll meet Judah and spend some time with him. And then of course, we meet Joseph. And we learned this last week about Joseph and where we're at in today's passage. Joseph is a young man. He's 17 years old. Um, And Joseph is a special young man too. We remember last week that he was a faithful son and a faithful servant to his father. Uh, We saw in verse 2 of chapter 37 that he came back from the fields and gave a bad report about his brothers to his father. And that's what started uh, this whole line of thought. And then Jacob rewards him with the coat of many colors. That's an important part of our passage today as well, the coat of many colors. And it's important to remember that this coat of many colors is not just a fancy coat that you pick up at TJ Maxx. This was a truly unique robe, vestment that Jacob gifted to his son. This is really a kingly robe. Um, The many colors indicates that the the dyes used at the time, which was so costly and expensive, which came from all sorts of different lands to produce, this is a very rich, very unique, one-of-a-kind robe that he gives his son Joseph. And of course, that leads to animosity with the brothers too, which is important to 
our passage today. So he's proven his, his capabilities uh, uh, with his father. And more than, than being just a faithful servant to his father, it's important to key in on this too. Joseph is a faithful servant to God. I was sharing with Pastor Zach before really diving in and, and studying this. I never thought about Joseph in this way. But in reality, Joseph is, not, is, is a prophet. He receives divine revelation from God in his dreams and then those divine revelations come true in his lifetime. So those prophecies about a future time come completely true by the end of uh, Joseph's life. And we'll see that play out uh, in our study in the weeks to come. So Joseph was faithful to that. He shared those revelations with his brothers. He shared those revelations with his, his father, with his mother. And, of course, that breeds yet more animosity amongst the brothers there. And Joseph shows his faithfulness this week by willing to go through danger for his father. He's willing to go through, uh, uh, go out and do exactly what his father lays out for him. Which brings us to verse 12, which is where we're going to start today. Genesis 37, starting in verse 12. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. Then he said to him, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring back word to me. So he went, sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, what are you looking for? And he said, I am looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they're pasturing the flock. Then the man said, they have moved from here. So I've heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And just to give you an idea of what this journey looks like, this is not just a trip down the road into town that Jacob is sending Joseph on. This is a, a rather long journey. It was about 50 miles from where we, we uh, estimate that Jacob and his family was at in the valley of Hebron there, uh, all the way up to Shechem. And that was just the first stop that we saw uh, on, on Joseph's journey. And I mentioned to you a little bit ago uh, just some of the dangers along the way that Joseph faced here. Um, back in Genesis 34, uh, we saw a very sad episode uh, involving the rape of one of Jacob's daughters, Dinah. And this rape was perpetuated by the men in Shechem. And we see the story as it plays out. The two of Jacob's sons take vengeance upon the men of Shechem. You can find all of the details there in Genesis 34. Uh, but this is an antagonistic region. I'm sure they have not forgotten this particular episode by this time in their lives. Uh, the, 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 the way that this all played out uh, in front of them, violent, the violent end that, that ended that episode. So Shechem is a dangerous place. And 50 miles, that's no small journey when you're journeying through the wilderness. The Bible doesn't tell us how many people were in Joseph's company. This is all just speculation. I would assume that Joseph probably traveled with a traders or some sort of small group at least as far as Shechem, right? Because that's where his father planned for him to go. But I think when we get to the treachery of the brothers, it makes sense to me that Joseph was probably by himself. I don't think they could have kept this conspiracy under wraps uh, with, without that. So, so that's where we're at. That's the, the background, the story. That's how Joseph is leaving his father, carrying out his father's mission, going up uh, to Shechem and then on to Dothan. 
Now, I threw up a picture for you of Dauphin. This, is, uh, this picture was taken in the 1950s. Uh, and it's really uh, reasonable to assume that it hasn't looked much different since Joseph was there uh, roughly 4,000 years ago. So this, this plain of Dothan that we see here, we see a lot of open pasture land. We see a lot of green countryside. Uh, and it's accented by a nice big mound in the middle. That's called Tel Dothan. So it's a, the mound of Dothan. So you would have, if you had a massive flock like Jacob, like Jacob's sons would have uh, been managing at this time, this was a great place to really take your flock to go pasture. You can sit up on top of a, of a high vantage point. You can keep an eye on the livestock and the land. Um, you can see anybody coming and going uh, in that land if you uh, were up there on top of that hill. Which leads me to the next verse. Because they do see somebody coming from up on top of that hill. They do see someone coming from a far distance away. And that is their brother Joseph. Verse 18. When they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Now then come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. A couple points I'd like to make of this particular spot in scripture right here. Notice that it took no time at all for the brothers to decide that they were going to put Joseph to death. I would theorize that while they're out on the trail and this, just the dysfunctional family unit that Jacob's family was in, that the hatred of Joseph was probably the one unifying factor that all these men had. They hated this boy. And so this is, it's very likely that they talked about how much they hated him out on the trail, right? It's easy to, once we get together in a group that we're comfortable with, to complain about the things that we all like to complain about. We've experienced that in our own lives, uh, maybe on the car ride to church this morning. But this case, they were, their hearts were already ready to commit murder. So you can imagine them sitting up there on the, on the mound and seeing Joseph from a distance. Even though you can see for a long ways up there, that's still a short amount of time to come up with this plan to kill somebody. So just want to point that out. In verse 19, they call him the dreamer. And this is a, you could just feel the hate and the derision uh, that these brothers are, that have for Joseph. And what's ironic here is that this is an actually a true thing to call Joseph. He was a dreamer. He had dreams that were divine revelations of God. But instead of recognizing that, um, instead of taking that to heart, instead of seeing how this would all play out, no, let's just, we're going to mock this guy because there's no way that this little dude is going to rule over us. A note here on the dreams because uh, uh, I didn't review them with you yet. Just remember that Joseph had two particular dreams. One of them, there were sheaves gathering wheat in the field. They were gathering sheaves of wheat in the field. And when Joseph gathered his wheat, his wheat stood up and all of his brother's wheat came in and they bowed down and worshiped Joseph's wheat. All right. So that's the dream that these guys are referencing right here. And you can kind of understand where that animosity comes from. Now, if you're like me, uh, reading through and studying scripture, this is uh, uh, something jumped out to me, and this is just kind of a, a different aside here. I read verse 20, and I see, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. So I don't think these guys were out there with a spade and digging holes for fun or anything like that. And so I had to wonder, what in the world is a pit doing in a nice place like this? 
And the answer to that is, is you go back to the original Hebrew, and that word can be translated uh, from pit. It can also mean cistern, and it can also mean well. And really, what more is a well than a pit with a job to do, right? And so we can, we can imagine that throughout this nice countryside where you would pasture your flocks, it would be reasonable to assume that you'd get fresh water to this location for the men, for the animals uh, that are out there grazing and doing this pasturing. And so throughout, there, was, uh, there were wells dug, uh, cisterns dug for that purpose. And we... Uh, get even more credit for this just so you're, you're kind of building the picture in your mind eye uh, in 20, verse 24 because uh, it translates it for us that the pit was empty without any water in it which kind of gives you the hint that there probably should have been water in it or there was water in it at one time or another. So this is now a dried up well, a, a dirty, dusty, hard patched hole in the ground and they've already figured out how best they're going to use this pit by verse 20. But we got a, a ray of light breaking through the clouds here. Let's look at verse 21 here. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. Now, if we stop right there and we got no more details about Reuben's life, Reuben would seem like a really stand-up guy, right? He would seem like the hero of this story. Because you get the sense of relief if you had no idea what this passage had in store, that finally... Somebody cares about Joseph. I'm going to pop that bubble for you right now because Reuben is, uh, just to get to know him a little bit better, he's the eldest son of Jacob. He's the eldest son. He's the eldest son born to Leah, but he's the eldest son of all of Jacob's sons. And Reuben is a very complicated person. We see him uh, falling short of the mark many times uh, throughout Genesis, but I want to I keep our focus here on Reuben's uh, uh, behavior in this particular passage. Because Reuben, as the oldest, would have been the one to assume the birthright uh, after Jacob had passed away. And we need to remember that birthright means more than just the inheritance. We got to think of it in a way that, that Reuben is going to kind of inherit that patriarchal role within this family, right? So he's going to inherit, uh, obviously, a large sum of the wealth, but also the influence uh, that goes along with that as well. So he should have been the de facto ruler in this little group of guys out here uh, pasturing this flock. But we find him a little bit wanting here, okay? We see, uh, continuing on in verse 22, Reuben further said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. And you might be thinking, that motivation right there sounds really good. Brandon, what is your problem with Reuben? Because he seems like a good guy. I gotta tell you, going down into verse 30, uh, skipping ahead just a little bit, after Joseph is taken out of the pit by the slave traders, we see Reuben's heart for what it really is. And in verse 30, uh, he returned, Reuben returns to his brothers and said, the boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? That reveals all of Reuben's motivations laid bare. The only reason he was trying to save Joseph was to save his own skin. He was afraid of his father. There was no love. There was no compassion. There was no moral compunction to rescue this young boy out of this pit. No, he was afraid of the consequences that it would bring him. And consequences it would bring. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But 
not to paper over the fact, we do need to give credit where credit is due. Reuben initially talked the brothers out of killing Joseph outright. They might have killed him outright as soon as he came up the hill, but Reuben was able to at least uh, put it off um, until a little bit later. Now, Reuben here, um, we, we know too, just to, just to play this out a little bit further, just in case you're still thinking that Reuben is a decent enough guy, when we see the deceit come into play later, when we see the lie perpetuated to their father Jacob, Reuben is all too willing to go along with it. He is all too willing to engage in the deceit once the deed has been done. And I got to think this too. I have to think that Joseph could still be rescued if somebody would just bother to do the thing. Or even if they get back to Jacob. Imagine if Reuben had said and confessed his heart and said, we cast Joseph into the pit and he was carried off by slavers. You don't think that Jacob, being the man of power, of wealth, and of influence that he was, who loved this boy Joseph, would have left everything he had, would have risked it all to go down and get Joseph back out of slavery? Because I sure think he would have. I think that's, that's uh, Jacob's uh, character there as well. But Reuben instead perpetuates the lie. So we see in Reuben's life a lot of times where he's, there's the mark and he's about to hit it and we just kind of do this nosedive right, right, right below. And it's a sad, uh, sad example of morals not being up to snuff, leadership not being up to snuff, all these things. But we have belabored the point on Reuben long enough and there's more story to tell. And we're in verse 23 now. And we're going to see just what Reuben's advice left to his brothers. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. And the pit was empty without any water in it. And then verse 25 says, get this, then they sat down to eat a meal. So I want to hit refresh here. I want to look at where we are in this story one more time here. We've got Joseph, a 17-year-old boy who's carrying out his father's wishes, going to his family members. He's traveled over 50, we'll think, in 60, 70 miles away from his house to carry out his father's mission. And he gets to the site where his brothers are, these men that he knew his entire life. The boy gets to the top of the hill, and there his brothers lay hands on him, strip him bare, and throw him down into a pit. This boy would have been totally defenseless of this. There would have been nothing to prepare. These are rough and ready shepherding guys. This isn't like a, 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 a bunch of of people who had never known physical labor or anything like that, Joseph would have been powerless against them. And they threw him down into the pit. And it just, I can't get over verse 25, they sat down to eat a meal. And it gets sadder than that. I'll bring your attention to chapter uh, 42 of Genesis, verse 21. Truly, we, this is the brothers now talking. They're down in Egypt. They're with Joseph, but they don't know it's Joseph yet. It's a complicated story. Stick with us through the series. But they're down there, uh, the brothers before Joseph, and they say, Truly, we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. So that gives us one more sad detail here. These guys didn't just go eat a meal somewhere else, they were within earshot of their brother and they knew exactly how much agony they could hear Joseph pleading for his life and yet they sat there in the hardness of their hearts and they ate a meal and in all likelihood tried to decide to do what's next. That is very 
cold. That is, I, it, this doesn't get any colder than that. But the plot thickens in our conspiracy here. Carrying on in verse 25. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. And one quick note here on these, on these uh, caravan of traders, because Moses records to for us uh, just exactly what these uh, folks' background is. He calls them Ishmaelites here and uh, Midianites down below and Ishmaelites again. So why Ishmaelites, Midianites, Ishmaelites, Midianites? This is a, a group of traders here. Who are the Ishmaelites and who are the Midianites? The Ishmaelites, we can probably surmise pretty quickly that they are descendant of Abraham through his son Ishmael, right? His son, not of the promise, but his son Ishmael, uh, born of Hagar. Midian, Midian is also a descendant of Abraham through another son, all right? Uh, so later in uh, excuse me, Abraham's life, after Sarah has died, Abraham remarries and is with this wife that he uh, uh, conceives, Midian. So these Midianites, these Ishmaelites, these guys are cousins to the man they're going to take out of the hole and take down into Egypt. So the story just gets a little bit, another layer of sadness, especially for Joseph, because I, I think it's reasonable to assume that even though these, these folks wouldn't have had family reunions where you get to know your cousins like you and I do, we would have still known uh, this in this period of time with these nomadic herdsmen, herdsmen uh, tribes are important. Family lineage is important. These folks would have known each other, which is probably why the sons of Jacob engaged with them in trading in the first place, and they engaged with them as well. And so Joseph is sold by his brothers to his cousins into slavery down into Egypt. And it just doesn't get any sadder than that. But we meet here in verse 26 to continue on the story. We're, we're going to meet another brother by name. This other brother's name, of course, is Judah. And Judah is a recognizable name to us as Christians. That's an important name. And we'll get maybe more on that uh, uh, towards the end of, of today's passage. But for now, we need to recognize that Judah is a man. And Judah is not exactly the kind of guy that you would hang out with um, in your downtime. So let's see verse 26 here. Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. So here we meet Judah. Judah is a man, he's a natural leader. Because we see here in, um, at the end of verse 27 that his brothers are going to listen to him. Apparently, the brothers weren't quite convinced by Reuben because in verse 26, they're still talking about killing the kid, right? They're still talking about the debating killing uh, Joseph outright, but they're going to listen in verse 27 to Judah's plan here. And Judah has got some really twisted, twisted morals, all right? And we can see, if you read ahead um, uh, in the chapter immediately following 37, so chapter 38, Judah and Tamar uh, and that whole affair 
is one of the most messed up stories that you'll read in Scripture. There, there, is, uh, there is so much sin and deceit and wrongness going on there uh, that ex- further exposes who Judah is as a character, right, as a person. Um, but here in this passage that we're at today, it's, it's plain to see, right? What profit is it uh, for us to kill our brother? Right there, what profit is it? It's all about the money for Judah, it's not about don't kill Joseph because he's of our blood. It's but, you know, let's not kill him to, because he's our blood, but it's okay to sell him type of thing. We can still sell him. We can still lie to our father, and at least we get something out of the deal this way. That's Judah's motives. That's Judah's uh, heart on display right there. And he saves Joseph's life only to turn a profit. We find uh, going down in verse 28 that the Midianite traders pass by. They pull Joseph up out of the pit and they sell him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. That's approximately eight ounces. That is, in, as far as I could tell in my research in the late Bronze Age, that's the going rate for an unskilled slave. And that, so we're not talking a great sum of money here that uh, that the brothers sold Joseph for. And if you do the math, 10 brothers out in the wilderness and 20 shekels of silver, that comes out to, if you split the pot evenly, two shekels apiece. So to, their, to them, their brother was worth two shekels, and that was it. That's it. That's all the profit that they got out of this, and they got Joseph out of their hair for good. And now let's continue with our story in verse 29. Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments. He returned to his brothers and said, the boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? So Reuben stepped out for a little bit, probably tending to the flock, thinking Joseph was nice and safe, and when he comes back, his half-baked plan uh, completely fell apart. And so now he's got to go along with the conspiracy as well, or he can reveal it to his father. But he doesn't. He goes right along with it. And so that brings us to, the, to the, the, where this conspiracy goes. Because sin always has consequences. And the consequences get out of our control. And we are going to see here in the last few verses of chapter 37, just the deceit of Jacob. And it's with no small amount of irony that Jacob himself is deceived. We've seen Jacob being a complicated person himself many times throughout his life engaged in deceitful acts as well. Um, But as we see, that deceit is going to come back and haunt him as his sons turn the tables and deceive him. It doesn't make it any less sad for Joseph or for Jacob, but uh, but, but it is not unironic that, uh, that the deceit comes his way now. So verse 31, so they took Joseph's tunic, slaughtered a male goat, and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, we found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. I got to stop right there and I got to say this. This is a brilliant plan, really. It's completely evil. But it is a brilliant plan. Because what the brothers have done, they have presented the information to Jacob himself, right? And the best lies are the ones that we never have to tell. They didn't say the words, Joseph is dead and he got mauled by a beast. No, they took 
that unique cloak that Joseph had, the very colored tunic as it says in scriptures, they dipped it in blood and they laid it at Jacob's feet. And Jacob put together the dots himself. So with Jacob, him already figuring out and piecing together the evidence, it's likely that he never would have questioned it any further than that because he came to the conclusion all on his own what happened to Joseph. And what a callous deceit this is because Jacob, uh, they have taken not only his beloved son from him, but they've taken that rich ornamental gift that Jacob gave to his son and thrown it right back in his face. And there's no doubt that Jacob blamed himself for the death of his son. We remember in verse 12, it was Jacob who sent Joseph out of the house to begin with. It was Jacob who sent Joseph to go see his brothers. And so that must have been internalized here as a grieving father blames himself for the son's death. And so in verse uh, 33, we see, the, we see the fruits of this. He, Jacob, then he examined it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth on his loin, and mourned for his son for many days. Going on to verse 35. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. And so his father wept for him. The consequences of this sin now trickled out to the entire family. And until the, this family is restored down in Egypt, roughly 17 years after these events, this family is going to have to deal with the consequences of this sin, of this grief. And this grief is severe. Now, thankfully, all of Jacob's sons and daughters attempted to cover, uh, comfort him. Thankfully, the daughters were there. But how could you do that as a son? How could you perpetuate this lie and then go to your father and attempt to comfort him? And nobody bothered to tell him the truth. That would have been the greatest comfort of all right there to know that his son was truly alive, that this was not an irreversible circumstance that he finds himself in. But instead, they go along with the lie and they comfort him with their lips and Jacob mourns the loss of his son. Which brings us to verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. And so we see there in verse 36, it's such a, a wonderful end to this passage because it, it concludes this story and it introduces us to the next. We're reminded that we're in a series uh, the, the, of, of Joseph's life here. We know that God is moving this story along, that it doesn't end with Joseph being sold into slavery and we never know what happens. It is our privilege to continue to study this word and to see how God's purposes play out in the land of affliction. And we know uh, from knowing this story that, that they are going to play out very, very, very well for Joseph and his family. But this is a sad story, right? This conspiracy against Joseph in almost every element is foreign to us and to our lives right now. It took place about 4,000 years ago in a different land, in a completely different society, with a family structure that is wholly unlike any family structure that any of us have ever been exposed to. So is there anything to find in common here? Is there any common ground that we can see? Is there anything we can learn from this passage? So let's dig in and, and ask here. So we got to ask the obvious question here. Where 
obviously the brothers, what they have conducted uh, themselves here is disgusting. It is immoral. It is wrong. It should grieve us to see uh, anyone behaving in this uh, way, much less family behaving in this way and betraying each other in this way. But I point out to you now that the sin didn't start when the brothers tossed Joseph into the well. The sin starts in the hearts. We, uh, I'll turn your attention to, and I'll read this to you, you don't have to turn here. This is what Jesus has to say on the matter. This is from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Picking up again in verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust at her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So where did the sin begin for these brothers? It wasn't at Dothan. I can tell you that. If you go back in in chapter 37, we can see their sin beginning and taking form in verse 4. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then it grows more in verse 8. After Joseph has shared his first dream with them about the sheaves of wheat, And in verse 8, his brothers say, Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us, or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then it grows even more in verse 11 after Joseph has revealed his second dream, this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars coming down and bowing before his feet. And in verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him. The envy was certainly percolating and taking form and then finally in verse 18 when they saw him from a distance the sin was ready to strike this sin had been brewing long before in the hearts of these brothers they didn't just wake up that day in Dothan and then find themselves uh, against God's purposes it started long ago within their hearts and so these sins have names that we can, uh, we can name them as well. We see in the brothers' lives, we see the sins, uh, the, 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 the roots of envy. We see hatred. We see deceitfulness. And while we certainly cannot relate to the fact that we've never thrown our brother in a well, we can relate here, right? These are all common experiences in our lives. I've been... Uh, uh, studying for this sermon for a while now and, and putting it together. And so when you, when you do that, you, you find that you start to preach to yourself. And so I've started to notice in my own life how many times these sins crop up into my own life here. It's so very common. And envy comes for us all at all stages of life. It's not just a kid that wants another kid's toy. Have you ever been passed up for a job that was rightfully yours and they gave it to some other person that was unqualified? Or at your workplace, has somebody, have, have you been up for a promotion and, and this other guy's been up for a promotion and you deserve it, but he's the one that gets the promotion and walks away with that? And in the family setting, it's there too. Have you ever had to compete uh, for your parents' attention? Have you ever, uh, in, I've seen it in adult 
children's lives where there seems to be one child that uh, takes care of an ailing or elderly parent and all the other children do is kind of come in flitting here and there uh, every once in a while and that envy builds up and it does what? It destroys that family relationship. Envy is always waiting underneath the surface and it's sneaky and it sneaks in on us in ways that we don't expect. Same with hatred too. It's a little bit less obvious here, but if I asked you what your thoughts were on the current president, what would I hear? I don't think love. I don't think love. And I'm not preaching a political sermon here. What I'm getting at is how easy it is for hatred to be internalized inside of our hearts as well. And deceit, we've all engaged in that deceit when we uh, do something that we're not quite proud of or that it would be, it's, it's fine, we don't need to tell anybody about it, we can just kind of sweep it under the rug. Deceit is so easy and always waiting at the gate. And so the bitter pill that we have to swallow this morning is while we can be disgusted with these brothers' actions, we have a lot more in common with their hearts than what we really, really want to admit. But I don't want to leave you there, all right? I don't want to leave you just uh, miring here in the sin because, thankfully, God doesn't leave you there either. There is a way out. And I want to expose to you what, what Paul has to say about this uh, in the book of Romans here, all right? Just to bring this idea of conspiracy back home to nest. This is from Romans chapter 7. Uh, Picking up in verse 15, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. If I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Skipping ahead to verse 23. I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. And we started talking this morning about conspiracies, right? We started, saw in Joseph the conspiracy that wasn't a great big government, it wasn't some other It was closer to home. It was in his own household. Friends, the conspiracy that we're going through as Christians is even more intimate than that because as Paul relates right here, it is our own sin nature rebelling what is good within us that causes us to continue to sin. That's the bad news. That's the internalized conspiracy. But I got good news because there's an answer to that. So how do we deal with, uh, with this sin in our lives, what do we do? We turn to the gospel. And I'll read to you now a uh, uh, passage from, this, from 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 9. Whoops, wrong reference bookmark. Too many bookmarks. Hang on, hang on, bear with me, hang on. 1 John 1, starting in verse 9. If we confess our sins. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with 
the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. So how, what is the answer to this conspiracy? How do we break that pattern of conspiracy in our own hearts where our sin nature is conspiring against what is good and belongs to God? We preach to ourselves the gospel. We remember that we have so great a savior that we can go to him at all times and in all ways. And the writer of Hebrews extols us to draw near to the throne of grace. Too many times I think as Christians, and I've done this a lot in my own life too, where you think of that gospel as the ticket that gets you into the theater, right? So you believe in, uh, in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, punch the ticket, go inside, sit down and take a seat. And then you never think about the gospel again, right? I like Jerry Bridges' uh, advice to us in his book, Respectable Sins. This one, this particular phrase uh, made a big impact on my life. And in this book, Respectable Sins, it's just that he's trying to exhort other Christians to deal with sins that we just kind of say are okay. The sins that we just are okay dealing with. They're fine. They're not that bad, right? They're respectable sins. Jerry's response, his advice to us was very practical, and it's simply this, we must preach the gospel to ourselves. So we as Christians always think about preaching the gospel to others, about reaching non-believers, and while that is true, we are denying ourselves, throwing ourselves back on the mercy of the Lord for him to absolve us of the sin so we can let go of that guilt in our life, so we can kill that sin finally before it takes root and bears fruit. We saw the fruit that envy, that hatred, that deceit can bear in the, in the passage that we read this morning, right? We saw where, how far envy can go. And we, uh, we know that those three sins that I've enumerated, uh, envy, hatred, and deceit, destroys relationships. They will destroy your relationship with your friends. They will destroy your relationship with your family. And yes, friends, they will destroy our church if we let these sins have their time in the sun. So that is why it is important that we continue to preach the gospel to ourselves, to look to Jesus who is our hope and to sin no more. But this entire time, we've been talking mostly to believers, right? This is what Christians are to do. And I recognize that I don't know where this is going uh, out on the internet, um, but I know here this morning that you might not have confessed with your mouth or believed in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. You might not have salvation is in you because we've talked a lot about the temporal consequences of sin this morning, but there are eternal consequences to sin as well. If we die in our sins without reconciliation to God, we are bound to a fate in hell. But there is a way out. We have so great a savior. And I've been keeping this in my back pocket this whole time. We're going to go back to Judah here in just a little bit. Because, friend, if you're sitting in the pew today or if you're listening at home or wherever you are and you think that your sins are too far gone or you're just going to keep trying to be good enough and kind of hope that you can kind of get to heaven on your own, that maybe your sins are going to, or your good works are going to outweigh your sins in some sort of scale and it's all going to be okay, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't pass it by. Because we can see this in Judah, in Judah's life here. We saw a reprehensible man this morning. A man who was willing to sell his brother, save his life, only to turn a measly profit for it. 
But that's not where God leaves Judah. And if you continue reading in the book of Genesis, you'll see in chapter 38, Judah's sin gets worse. He's a disgusting man. But that's not where God leaves Judah. At the end of this story, when we finally get to it weeks from now, and the brothers are down in Egypt with himself, Judah is the one who offers his own life as a ransom for his brother Benjamin. This same dude who was willing to sell Joseph for a prophet is the guy that throws himself on the sword to try and save Benjamin's life when it comes back to it. And it goes even further than that because at the very end of the book of Genesis, we see the blessings of Jacob being uh, laid out. And Jacob says this to Judah before he dies, the scepter will not depart from him nor the ruler's staff between his feet. Friends, this disgusting sinner that we have seen this morning is the ancestor to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that truly amazing how God works, how redemptive history works? There is no sin so great, there is no person so disgusting that God cannot save that person and redeem him. And we see uh, Judah's final legacy in, in Revelation 5.5, 5, where Jesus Christ himself is referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. What a wonderful story that is. If you want to participate in that redemption, if you haven't given your heart to the Lord, come find me afterwards. Let's pray together. Let's make that happen today. We don't need to uh, waste another day going by where sin is going to run your life into the ground and where sin is going to run you into the grave and into an eternal hell instead of into the open and waiting arms of the Savior who is at the right hand of the God right now. I want to leave you with one final thought here, and then we'll uh, uh, break for song. Just a nice little capstone here uh, from Titus. This is Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your word. We're thankful for this time to, to go through uh, this passage of Scripture, uh, which is difficult to see the sins going on here and the, the destructiveness, but we are thankful that we know that this is not how this story ends. And Lord, I pray that uh, you can expose in our hearts the sins that is present there so that we may confess them to you so that our lives are spared from the consequences of those sins as well. And Father, if there's anyone hearing this now uh, that is feeling that uh, burden on their heart to put their faith in you, I pray that you make it irresistible and may they seek out someone and may they pray to let Jesus in their heart today. And we pray this in his precious name, amen.